In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Just imagine for a second what that actually means, what what that would look like. Jesus is telling his disciples in this crucial moment in the story of the gospel that there is a place for every single person in his Father's house. That in God's reality, every single person has a place to lay their head. Imagine that for a second and take it literally. What would this house look like? Well, we know that it would be huge, large enough to house billions upon billions of people, all under one roof. We know that the tenants of this house, who would be us, would be infinitely diverse, as diverse as all humanity. The people living down your hallway could be from anywhere, across the world or across time, from any culture, language, or tradition. And we know that this house would be equitable. It's hard to imagine that God would create a house where some apartments were luxury and others were just a little closet. So that's what Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment, that there is a place in God's house for each and every one of them. And the reason we tell this story 2,000 years later is to be inspired to believe in our own time that such a house even exists for us. For Jesus, everyone has a home. For Jesus, housing is not competition. There are no neighborhoods full of McMansions or luxury buildings that sit alongside squalid shanty towns. For Jesus, the point is that everyone has a place. And in his followers, we are to believe the same. That's the principle at work here in this gospel, that there's a spot for everyone. And yet, how far are we, 2,000 years, from this vision that Jesus has? You know, this gospel is often read at funerals, and I've had the privilege of preaching on this gospel at the celebration of the lives of many different people who have passed from this life to the next. And so there's a certain association that some of you might even have with death in hearing this gospel. We read it as a reminder that even if in this life someone may not have had a home, we have faith in the next. God has already prepared a place for them. And on this particular Sunday, it's impossible not to hear these words and think about the life and death of Jordan Neely. You, of course, know what happened on Monday. Jordan was a 30-year-old young man who was on the subway. He was having some problems. As New Yorkers, we all know exactly what this scene looks like. You're either walking down the street or sitting in the subway or somewhere else, 
and you are confronted with someone who is having some really serious issues. It can be a little bit scary, and sometimes you don't know what to do. But I can tell you what not to do, which is exactly what one of the subway passengers did to Jordan. He grabbed him, put him in a chokehold, and killed him. Of course, Jordan's murderer has been interrogated by the police, but no charges have been filed against him. And even our mayor said that he supported, in part, maybe, the fact that someone was taking action finally against this scourge of homelessness in the subway. Let's put this in context for a second. In a city of almost 8 million people, in New York, every single night, about 70,000 people go to sleep without a place to call their own. That's one in 120 New Yorkers. One in 120. That's a lot. 70,000 people would make a large town or maybe a small city in our country. So we have, within this city, an entire community of people who have no place to lay their head. Even more astounding, of those 70,000, an estimated 22,000 are children. These children are growing up without a place to call their own. They have to go to school, do their homework, do all the things that kids usually do, except they're doing it either coming from a place on the streets or being traded back and forth between relatives, or worse yet, from within the shelter system. Think for a moment about your own childhood and the challenges that you faced. And then imagine you had to do all those things while living in a shelter. Homelessness, or the problem of the unhoused, is something that really came to the fore in our country, in cities all over the country, especially during the pandemic. And you've probably read in the news about things that have happened in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago, and the way that the leaders and mayors of these communities are taking tough measures to crack down on the problem. But as Christians, we are called to ask an even deeper question. When we say there is a problem of homelessness, what exactly is that problem? When people say there's a problem, do they mean that the problem is that people who do have a place to live are confronted with the terrifying reality of what it would be like not to have a home to call your own? Is the problem that those of us who have access to mental health care are confronted with the reality of those who do not and whose illness goes untreated and who therefore become the most vulnerable people in our society? Is that the problem, merely that it exists and inconveniences the rest of us? Or is the problem something completely different? Is the problem that there are 70,000 people in our city who are unhoused? Is the problem that in a city that sees fit to build massive housing towers of residences that cost billions upon billions of dollars, 
where most of those units are simply used as investment properties and no one actually lives in them, that in such a city, it is still possible for 20,000 children to go to sleep without a home. To me, that's the problem. That's the problem. And as Christians, we are called to keep speaking out to redirect the conversation towards what the problem really is. Remember, Jesus says that in his Father's house, there are many dwelling places. We are supposed to believe in his words, and if we do, then we too can believe that there are just enough dwelling places for every single, pe- every single person, even in this vast metropolis of ours. That is what we are supposed to do. As Christians, we have a special obligation to care for and advocate for the most vulnerable people in our society. This has been the case since the founding of this religion because it's what Jesus did. And then his first followers found that they encountered God every time that they were acting on behalf of someone who had no one to act on their behalf. And so over the course of generations and centuries and even millennia, this sacred knowledge was passed down, even to us, so that in a time in the 21st century, when this horrible inequity continues in our own community, we would also know the joy of standing up and reaching out and understanding community to be something larger than something that is simply contained by our own little lives. But there's another piece to it. Christians are called to advocate for the vulnerable, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but because it's at the heart of our faith. In the baptismal covenant, we make a promise to seek and serve Christ in all persons. That means that when Jordan Neely was having an issue on the subway, had a Christian been there who took that promise seriously, she or he or they would have looked him in the eyes and seen the face of Jesus Christ. And when you see the face of Christ, then you have no option other than to do something to help them not put them in a chokehold. Instead, what happened to Jordan was something more akin to what we hear from the lesson from the book of Acts, the martyrdom of Stephen, a person who simply had seen God, who everyone thought was crazy, who was perceived to be dangerous, and because of that, in spite of the fact that he was completely innocent, dragged out of the city and stoned to death. You tell me, how Jordan Neely's experience, his martyrdom, was different from that. You see, friends, we have something special. We have this sacred text. We have a holy community. We have been given all the tools that one could possibly need in order to fight back, in order to create a more just and equitable society. And we do it because that's what God wants us to do, and because that's the purpose of being on this planet, to love God and to love one another. 
I'm so proud to be a member of this church for so, so many reasons. But I will tell you one of them is that at any given time, there are some people who are a part of this community in one way or another who are unhoused. They are embraced and welcomed, and I watch with pride and joy as I see how the members of this congregation interact with those, the people who do have a place to stay, interact with those who do not have a place to stay. And we do it with love and care and compassion in the same way that the unhoused people who are a part of our community need to deal with those who are housed with love and care and compassion. And let me tell you something. When that kind of holy community comes together, there is nothing anyone can do to stop it. Because when it happens, everyone is transformed. And we all wind up seeing the face of Christ in one another. That's how we honor and respect the dignity of every human being, which is yet another one of the promises that we make in our baptismal covenant. We do it in knowledge that the opposite can also be true. When we deny the dignity of another human being, we are denying Christ himself. My friends, we are still in this season of Easter, and even a five-borough bike tour can't stop that from happening. We are a resurrection people. We believe that Christ is alive and moving and working within the world. And we believe that this sacred text, this gospel, is also alive and working in the world. One small line from this text tells us that in God's house, everyone has a place to stay. And if that word is alive, then let it live within us as well. Let us be people who are foolish enough to think that every single human being has a place to stay in this God's kingdom. Amen.